0: Okay, turn with me to Matthew 13. We're looking at the parable of the dragnet, and then we'll look at the following that, a very brief little parable of the householder. But let's first reread and do some review of where we were at. And first read the parable of the dragnet, verses 47 to 50 of Matthew 13 says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it is filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's the... uh There's a lot that can be said about this parable. Jesus is only interested in one element, and that is the separating process that took place on the shore. Uh, He says it's a picture of the angel separating the wicked from the righteous at the end of the age. The time is coming when he will make that separation between those who are the true subjects of the king and love the Lord Jesus Christ and those who do not. And so... Uh, we looked at that briefly, and then we started looking at the third aspect of the parable, which was the parable of judgment. There in verse 50, he says, He'll throw him into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we said last time, that if there's any doctrine in the Bible that we wish wasn't there, it's the doctrine of hell. Uh, that does not eliminate it, though. It's too clear, too often repeated in Scripture to deny it or to ignore it. So these are terrifying words from our Lord. And we saw four truths about hell. We saw that hell is a place of constant torment, misery, and pain, a place of unrelieved torment. Uh, And the Bible describes it as darkness, outer darkness. Uh, It's that deep pit darkness uh, with no no light whatsoever. Uh, It's impenetrable. And it's darkness without the hope of light forever. And scripture says it's a fire. Uh, it's not a fire that we would know as fire. Uh, but fire is God's way of describing it because it is torturous, unrelieved, kind of burning fire, more terrible than any fire that we would ever know. It's called the lake of fire. And so it's a place of absolute darkness, which burns with an indescribable intensity, causing great torment to the damned, a place of no light and no relief forever endeavor. Uh, only agony and pain. Secondly, it's a place of unrelieved torment for both body and soul. Neither the soul nor the body is annihilated at death, nor will they ever be. And in Mark 9:48, Jesus said of hell that it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire's not quenched. In other words, the Lord is saying the torment of the body goes on and on relentlessly without end eternally. And it says the fire is not quenched. Third, the torments of hell will be experienced in varying degrees. In other words, for some people, hell will be worse than others. We saw that in Matthew, in Hebrews 10.29, uh, where it talks about those who have, who have trampled on Jesus Christ, uh, those who have rejected his him. Uh, they know the truth, but they've rejected it. They will know a greater hell than those who have not. Uh, and then, th- just as there are differing rewards in heaven, <clears throat> there are differing degrees of punishment in hell. Uh, we saw that, too, in Matthew 10, 15, and Matthew eleven twenty two, where he compares uh, being more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for these Jews that saw the truth and yet rejected it, more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for them. Uh, so there is unrelieved torment of body and soul in varying degrees. And fourth, the torment of hell is everlasting, it's eternal. Nothing will be so horrible about hell than its endlessness. The only reason that we make it through the trials that we have in life is that uh, we look at the pain, we look at our suffering, and we have hope that it's going to end at some point. And uh, there's going to be, it's going to come to an end, but people in hell won't have that. They will experience the total absence of hope. Uh, sin is, we talked about those that uh, try to say that, uh, you know, the, the annihilationist who tries to say that, uh, uh, you know, God, the person only sinned for a short period of time, you know, however many, many years of their life, so why should hell be eternal? And uh, uh, the problem is they misunderstand the nature of sin. Uh, Sin is not merely a temporal violation of some kind of arbitrary rule against certain behaviors. It is an infinite offense. It's cosmic treason against an eternal and infinitely holy God. Uh, If God is infinitely worthy of all love, honor, and obedience, then any sin against him is a violation of that infinite obligation to love, honor, and obey him. And thus, it is an infinite evil, and an infinite evil deserves an infinite punishment. Uh, In fact, infinite punishment is exactly what it deserves in order to satisfy God's justice. Uh, Because if God did not punish sin with eternal punishment, he would not be just. And because an infinite sin against an infinite God deserves infinite punishment. Then, uh, as we said Contrary to them, also the the annihilationist, the uh, Bible makes it very clear that punishment in hell is eternal. It just doesn't, they don't, they're not annihilated after a certain number of years. They, it, they live forever. In Matthew 25, 46, speaking of the final judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous, it was Jesus himself who said, and these will go away into eternal punishment, and but the righteous into eternal life. That tells us that it's just as everlasting as heaven. Whatever everlasting life is in terms of its length, so is everlasting punishment. And that's where we stopped last time. We had finished on the parable of the dragnet and, and what is talking about hell. And we come to the last part of the section, verses 51 to 52, the parable of the householder. So let's read it. Verse 51, Jesus says, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. He said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And Jesus asked his disciples, have you understood these things? The, the verb understood is from a Greek word which originally meant to put together. Uh, over time, it came to have the medical, metaphorical uh, meaning of to understand. So Jesus was asking his disciples, have you guys put all of this together? Uh, Have you got all this put together in your mind so that you understand that this form of the kingdom has both good and evil living together, growing together, that the, the good is going to continue to permeate and influence? Do you understand that in order to be a part of the kingdom, you have to give all that you have in order to obtain all that Christ is? Uh, Have you put all of this together? Remember, he's been teaching all these parables all along. This is the final thing. So he's asking him, do you see that it's going to go along like this with the good and evil until the end, and then comes the final separation? Uh, Do you have it? And the disciples say, yes, we understand it. Now, knowing how clueless the disciples usually were, you might be inclined to chuckle a bit and Say, what do you mean? You guys are a bunch of clueless dummies. Uh, And we know that their understanding was less than perfect, but I believe he accepted their answer because he knew that they truly believed and thought they understood. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said what he said in verse 52. So he's saying to them, do you understand this? Now, why does he say that to them? Because back in chapter 9, verse 38, he saw the world as a harvest moving towards judgment. So he said, pray with me that the father will send forth labors into his harvest to warn them. And in chapter 10, he calls the disciples. In chapters 11 and 12, he trains and prepares the disciples. In chapter 13, he taught the disciples. And now he says, are you ready to go out with a message? And they say, we've got it. We understand it. And so then he says this in verse 52. Then here's what you're like. You're like a scribe who's become a disciple of the kingdom who is who's like a homeowner. Uh, Now let's see if we can straighten that out. The term scribe literally referred to a learned person who was able to read and write. Uh, But among the Jews the term had long carried the distinctive connotation of a man who was a learner, an interpreter, a teacher of the law, uh, of God's revealed word that we now call the Old Testament. He was known as a theologian, a lawyer, a uh, teacher, a preacher. They were members of the Sanhedrin. They were recognized, acknowledged authorities on the Old Testament and tradition. They were called rabbi. Uh, They were influential. And under Jesus' instruction, these men have become scribes who have been disciples of the kingdom of heaven. He says, every one of you has become a prepared trained learner and teacher of the Old Testament and the things concerning the kingdom of heaven. So that's what he's saying. In fact, you could translate it, you're now discipled biblical scholars and teachers. Uh, That's what a scribe was really. He was a student, interpreter, a transmitter of scripture. And he's saying, I've done the same to you, just like the Jews do with their scribes. I've discipled you. I have discipled you into Biblical scholars and teachers. And so here's what you're like. You're like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now, what does that mean? Jesus says, well, now I've discipled you. I've trained you. I've prepared you. I've nurtured you so that you could become the laborers to go into the harvest and warn men. And now you're like a homeowner who has a storage room in which he keeps his valuables, that which are for the needs of the household." Uh, The people who were a part of that home, the the family members, the slaves, the hired servants, needed food and clothing and tools and medicine and money to buy needed items. Whatever it was they needed, he brought it out of that room. Uh, By the way, that word that is used there is thesaurus, uh, which means treasury or treasure. We've seen that word before. Uh, A thesaurus is a treasury of words to us in English. Uh, This room was where the man kept everything that was valuable and uh, everything that was needed to operate his household. And he was wise enough to dispense both the new and the old. Uh, He didn't always give out the new so that the old ultimately became useless. Uh, In other words, he kept around used items that were still useful and passed them out when they were needed. Uh, The wise head of a household dispenses the old with the new in balance because he is a steward of everything that he possesses. And the Lord says, this is what you're like. Now you have a storehouse, and that storehouse is filled with old and new. Now what did Jesus mean by that? Well, they knew the Old Testament, and now they had heard the mysteries of the kingdom. So they knew old covenant truth And the dawn of the new covenant was coming upon them. They could not only tell them about Old Testament and Jewish tradition, but they could dispense the new mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, They were one up on the scribes. All the other scribes had was the old stuff. But these guys who would become the apostles would have an understanding of both the old covenant matters as well as the new covenant matters, which... Jesus had taught them and about which the Holy Spirit would reveal even more to them. Uh, So they would proclaim the significance of both. So he says, you're the householder who has the old and the new in perfect balance. God called you, trained you, and prepared you to spread it out. I want you to notice the words brings out. That's a very interesting verb that Jesus used there. It's another word that we've seen before. Jesus used it back in chapter 9, verse 38, where he said to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out, that's the exact same word, uh, workers into his harvest. It's the word ekbalo. Uh, it means to cast out, to throw out by force. We get the word ball, balo, from that word. Uh, a ball is something you throw. Ek is the Greek intensifying, which means out. So it's to throw out. Um, It's often used of Jesus of casting out demons. (coughs) So it means to fling out, to scatter abroad. And it implies it's to throw out by force. Uh, In other words, Jesus is saying, okay, you guys, you've got all this treasure now, so fling it out, throw it out. Now that you've been discipled, now that you're trained biblical scholars and teachers, throw it out. Give them the old and the new in perfect balance. That which God said in the past and that which is new in the form of the kingdom. Now do you see the connection back to chapter 9, verse 38? Uh, All of this comes out of that statement about sending forth laborers into the harvest. Uh, Jesus is saying mankind is on the way to hell. And I want you to understand how the kingdom is going to be. It's a mixture of good and evil. But ultimately, it's going to end in a separation. And now that you know this, go proclaim it. Cast it out there to everyone. Folks, I submit to you that Jesus is saying that our message is based on hell. That's our message. The world is going to hell. In the parable of the wedding feast, In Matthew 22, the Lord gives a very similar illustration. Uh, There's a wedding and lots of people show up at the wedding. But then the king comes in and he sees a guy who doesn't have a wedding garment. And he says, what are you doing here? You don't have a wedding garment. In other words, you got caught in the net of the kingdom, but you're not really one of the real ones. You don't have a wedding garment. And it says the man was speechless, he had nothing to say, he had no claim to make, and the Lord says, tie him up and throw him into the outer darkness, for many are called, but few are chosen. It's the same principle. Uh, The kingdom dragnet catches a lot of people, but not all who are called are going to be a part of the kingdom. Uh, We have a tremendous responsibility, it's been given to us to know the mysteries of the kingdom, hasn't it? but to them it hasn't been given and we have what they need. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, So then, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Uh, If you can't get your heart wrapped around the fact that people are dying and going to hell every second you breathe, then there's something wrong with your theology, isn't there? Uh, That's the epitome of selfishness. Our modern-day version of Christianity has lost this because we decided that the world doesn't want to hear a message about hellfire and brimstone. Uh, In his commentary on Matthew, John MacArthur relates the following story that he experienced several years ago. As you know, Grace to You has been heard on Christian radio for many years. And he recounts a story about receiving a copy of the policy statement from one so-called Christian broadcasting company, that refused to proclaim anything that was fearful or uncomfortable. Uh, The company's stated purpose is, quote, to be a good neighbor to a variety of listeners, end quote. Uh, Here's what the policy statement given to prospective broadcasters instructs them to do. This is a quote. Quote, when you're preparing your program for these stations, please avoid using the following criticism of other religions and references to conversion, missionaries, believers, unbelievers, old covenant, new covenant, church, the cross, crucifixion, Calvary, Christ, the blood of Christ, salvation through Christ, redemption through Christ, the Son of God, Jehovah, or the Christian life. Uh, these people, The people listening are hungering for words of comfort. We ask you to adhere to these restrictions so that god's word can continue to go forth please help us maintain our position of bringing comfort to suffering people end quote (laughs) Uh, (laughs) folks that's not comfort that's preaching damnation false comfort damns people Uh, you must tell people the truth how tragic that an organization that claims that is dedicated to bringing comfort, refuses to so much as mention the elements essential to the only message that can bring true peace and comfort to the troubled soul. Uh, Never think that you're bringing comfort to someone when you share a gospel message that is devoid of a warning about God's judgment on sinners. Jesus loved people so much that he warned them of the imminent an eternal danger that faces them apart from faith in him. And we must do the same. So that brings us to the end of, of that section. Uh, before we jump into the next section uh, and get started on it, are there any questions or comments thus far? Yes. A general question. Is there anything that Jesus preached that did not come from the Old Testament, other than perhaps the expansion of the gospel to the Gentile world. Well, and even that, even that could good. be argued that that it was in the Old Testament quite clearly. Um, when he said, uh, "A new commandment I give you, to love one another," it's about, and even that can trace back to the Old Testament. So, um, you know, when he says, "I go to prepare a place for you," you yeah. know. Uh, but that's not about heaven, contrary to what a lot of people say. That's about him saying, I'm going to Calvary. Uh, and I'm, in doing so, I'm preparing a place for you in heaven. You see, Jesus has not been up there for 2,000 years doing a construction job to build heaven, to make your place. God created the entire universe in seven days. He can create heaven in an instant. So uh, he's not up there building a place for you. He, when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he was saying, I'm going to Calvary. And in doing so, I'm preparing the way for you to go to heaven. So, so yeah, you're right. Everything comes out of the Old Testament. Um, now, uh, let's read verses 53 to 58. Now, it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there and he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they were taking offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. We get the theme of this section from that last little statement, because of their unbelief. One Bible teacher even titles this section, The Power of Unbelief. Uh, Through the years, we as believers have often focused on the power of unbelief. Faith, or the power of belief. In fact, Jesus said if a person has faith the size of a mustard seed, he could move mountains and do the impossible. We all know the power of believing, the power of faith in God. Uh, We see it demonstrated throughout the scriptures. For example, uh, David believed God and was able to slay Goliath. Uh, Abraham believed God, became the father of a great nation. Uh, A lame man believed God and was healed. A, A synagogue official believed God and his son was raised. Uh, The leper believed and was made whole. The centurion believed and his servant was made well. Uh, The people in Numbers 21 who believed and looked at a brass serpent were healed of their disease. Two blind men believed and were instantly able to see. Daniel believed God and the lions didn't harm him. Uh, The nation of Israel believed God. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land and later on they believed God and the walls of Jericho fell flat. Uh, The Philippian jailer believed God was saved and as well as his whole household. Uh, a sick lady believed and touched the hem of Christ's robe and was made whole. Uh, Naaman the leper believed and was healed of his leprosy. Three young Hebrew men believed God and stood in the midst of a flaming furnace unhurt. And John 5.24 says that people who believe in Jesus are passed from death into life. Uh, the power it's, it's all about the power of believing, the power of faith. But on the other hand, we need to understand about the power of unbelief. Uh, as believing saves the soul and enables the power of God to be released on behalf of the person in his fullness so too unbelief halts the full release of the power of God unbelief dams up the flood of God's blessing verse 58 says it so well he, he did not do many miracles there why? because of their unbelief uh, the power of unbelief stops God from doing what he would do otherwise. Uh, We don't often think about that. We know that God could do whatever he chooses to do at any time he chooses to do it, but we rarely think about the fact that God responds to rejection and unbelief by limiting what he would otherwise do. Uh, So that's what we want to see in the next couple of chapters in this section of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Now, as we come to this section, you should understand that although Jesus continued to teach many additional truths and reinforced and illustrated those that he had already taught, the eight parables of Matthew 13 mark the end of Jesus' basic instruction to the disciples. Uh, As we mentioned previously, Jesus' teaching by means of parables was primarily in response to his rejection by the Jewish religious leadership and those who followed them. Uh, The same stories that clarified truth for his true followers obscured the truth for those who refused to trust in him. If you look back, all the way back to verses 11 and 13 of this chapter, you see that he told them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And in verse thirteen, therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now the two most important parables for the disciples to understand were the parable of the soils and the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, those parables made it clear that there would be some who would truly believe, and that for the present period of the kingdom the saved and the unsaved will live and walk side by side so the apostles and everyone following after them as witnesses for christ would carry on their ministry in a time of un- of both belief and unbelief of both good and evil now beginning in verse 53 and continuing all the way through chapter 16 verse 4 uh, there are eight incidents in the life of our Lord that correspond to and demonstrate the truths presented in these two parables. Uh, This section fits marvelously into Matthew's layout. Matthew has designed to present Jesus as king. Uh, You know that already. And he's done everything he can to do that, from the genealogy of Christ, the birth of Christ, The circumstances of the Magi who were the Oriental kingmakers uh, coming to affirm that he was indeed the king. Uh, The announcement of John the Baptist, uh, the credentials of the king through his miracles and his message. And he has presented not only the king, but the king has presented his kingdom. Uh, So all of the characteristics and the principles of his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount and the demonstration of the power of his kingdom in his miracles. All of that has been, Matthew's laid all of that out for us. And at the end of that, as we've moved through Matthew's gospel, we've seen that people basically have rejected him. Uh, And so we have been looking particularly at the rejected king. Uh, And as the Lord looks out over the people in chapter 9, he sees them as this mass of people who will not hear his message, who are on their way to judgment, and he cries out for God to send forth laborers, and those laborers turn out to be the disciples. And so beginning in chapter twelve, uh, chapter 10, we came to the training of the 12. And the summation of their training has come in chapter 13, where the Lord has given them these eight parables, uh, told them what to expect. And so now he's finished with their basic training, and it's time to move out. And so we read in verse 53, he departed from there. And the major mark of this section in Matthew's gospel is the king's rejection. The king's rejection. As he, he as he and the disciples move out into the harvest, they encounter those who illustrate the kingdom as he described it in the parables. It is a time of faith and unbelief, of believing and not believing. And so he is saying, in effect, to his own and to us, as you go out into the world, Expect that some will believe and some will not. And to illustrate this, Matthew gives us, beginning in this text, these eight incidents in the life of our Lord, which illustrate the kind of response there will be to the king. And they're masterfully presented. Having said in chapter 13, expect rejection, expect unbelief, expect that here and there will be some who will believe. And there will be good with the evil growing together. Jesus now illustrates that as they move out. And so they go to Nazareth. And as we see at the end of chapter 13, the, in this incident there. And what was their response? Look at verse 57. It says they were taking offense at him. They were offended. They weren't at all interested in the message. They were, uh, they weren't interested at all in the messenger. They were they they would have nothing to do with it. They were offended. Now if you compare this with the parable of the four soils, we could say they're what kind of soil? The hard stone the hard stony ground. Stony ground or hard soil. No response. As you move into chapter 14, you come to the second of the eight responses, and that's Herod the Tetrarch. He lived in Tiberias, which was in the Galilee area. He'd heard about the fame of Jesus and his reaction was fear because verse 2 says he thought Jesus might be John the Baptist risen from the dead. And he didn't want that because he had beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, he, he wouldn't get near Jesus. He was afraid because of his guilt. And throughout all of history there will be people like that. There will be those who are offended at the whole idea of Jesus being God in flesh to whom they owe allegiance. Uh, they're offended over the whole thing. And then there will be those who are afraid. Uh, They don't want to get near him because of the overwhelming sense of guilt, and that's the way Herod was. He's more of that hard, stony ground. And then as you move along in chapter 14, you come to verse 13, we find a crowd. Uh, Verse 14 says there was a large crowd. At the end of verse 13, it says, they followed him on foot from the cities, and verse 14 says he felt compassion for them and healed their sick, and then we see that he miraculously fed them. But notice that there is no statement whatsoever that's made about the fact that they believed. Uh, In fact, in John 6, 26, Jesus says that the only reason they were interested in him was not because he performed miracles that proved he was God, but because they saw him as a source of food. They, They didn't believe in him. Uh, at best, we could say they were curious about him, but they were not committed to him. They would be like the, the shallow soil or the thorny soil, where there's life for a little while, and eventually it dies away. And then you have the fourth incident with the disciples. It comes in chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, in which he walked on water, had Peter walk on water for a short, short bit, and then calmed the storm. And verse 33 says their response was one of worship and acknowledgement that he was the son of God. And so they represented the good soil, which brings forth fruit. Then we come to chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, and we see the Pharisees and scribes trying to condemn Jesus because his disciples were violating the traditions of the elders by not washing their hands ceremonially before eating. So their approach was one of condemnation. They came to condemn him. They didn't want to learn anything, they simply came to condemn him. And that's another example of the hard soil which the seed cannot penetrate. The sixth incident occurs in chapter 15, verses 21 and 22, uh, in which a Canaanite woman begs Jesus to show mercy on her and her demon-possessed daughter. And she cries out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. And after a back and forth conversation, Jesus tells her in verse twenty eight "O oh woman, your faith is great, and he healed her healed her daughter. Uh, there's another example of good soil with great faith. The seventh incident takes place in chapter fifteen verses twenty nine to thirty one where great crowds of the Galileans were coming to him, and he was healing the lame, crippled, blind mute, and many others and it tells us that he Heal them all, and it says that the crowd marveled at they, as they saw all of this taking place, and it says they glorified the God of Israel. They weren't too sure about Jesus, but they believed that God was in this, and so here again you have shallow soil and thorny soil. Uh, but there's where there's a response of amazement, but it falls short of worship of Christ like the disciples or great faith in Jesus and a recognition that he was the Son of God like the Canaanite woman. And then the last of the eight incidents comes in chapter 16. And here again, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That is, got both the conservatives and the liberals of Judaism team up together and try to put Jesus to the test. And what's their approach? Once again, Rather than responding to the, all the evidence that he has already shown, they demand that he perform a special miracle for them. It's just another form of attack. They're opposed to him, and once again, they are the hard, impenetrable impenetrable soil. And what I find interesting is that there are eight incidents, eight interactions with various groups, and of those eight, only two illustrate good soil. That's the same ratio as in the parable of the soils. Uh, So Jesus has taught the disciples that the response to the gospel in the present age would vary just like the soils in the parable are different. And they got to witness that truth illustrated in the lives of the people that Jesus encountered. In those situations, both the power of belief and and the power of unbelief are revealed. And so we go into the, as we go into the world, we can expect the same kinds of things. Now and then there's that good soil. Very often there'll be that hard resistant soil. And sometimes there's that curious amazed sort of temporary response kind of soil. So these incidents illustrate and demonstrate what Jesus taught in the parables about how people would respond in this age. So then, let's go back then to chapter 13 with that in mind and look at the first incident of Jesus coming to Nazareth. But before we do, let's look briefly at his departure from Capernaum. Verse 53. And it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. The reference there refers to the village of Capernaum. He had been ministering with Capernaum as a base for about a year, and now he left. Uh, He departed after giving these parables. Do you remember at the very beginning, we told you early in chapter 13 that the parables were hidden from the people and revealed only to the disciples because the people were not willing to believe. In fact, back in chapter 11, uh, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, and Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained till this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, Jesus pronounced a curse on the city of Capernaum. And so when it says that very simple little statement, At the end of verse verse 53, he departed from there. That's when Capernaum's history ended, and God's damning judgment began. It was the beginning of the end. He never went back except in passing. He never reestablished a base there. Capernaum had its opportunity. He had come into that city, demonstrated power that could only be interpreted as being from God, and now it was over. And it marked a crisis in the town's history from which it never recovered. If you go today to Capernaum, no one lives there. Uh, It's utter ruin. And the only people there are tourists who get off the tour buses on the nearby road. Uh, It's one of the most beautiful places on Earth, and yet no one lives there. It has felt the hot breath of the curse of Jesus Christ for its unbelief. Uh, In fact, archaeologists tell us that the last synagogue built in Capernaum, which was erected over the floor of the one where Jesus taught, was decorated with various animals and mythological figures. Uh, Having rejected the true God, the people were at the mercy of the false ones. So what happened next? Where did Jesus go next? Well, that brings us then to his return to Nazareth. Uh, when he left Nazareth, when he left Capernaum, verse 54, he says, he went back to Nazareth. It says he came to his hometown. That's Nazareth. It's about 30 miles away from Capernaum. In those days when they walked everywhere, he could have walked that in a day, maybe two, but... uh He could have walked that in a day or two, depending on how early he started and how many stops he took along the way. Uh, Mark's account tells us that the disciples followed him there. So he goes back to Nazareth, where he had been raised, where he lived for the first 30 years of his life, ever since he was a child, which makes what happened there even more amazing. And it says he began teaching them in their synagogue. Now, this is not the first time he did that. If you will recall, at the very beginning of his Galilean ministry, he went to his own hometown. I want you to see what happened because it's so very important in understanding what took place here in chapter 13. So turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. This was approximately a year earlier. Okay? It's about a year earlier. He's just beginning his ministry. And verses 14 and 15 tell us, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. and News about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he was teaching in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now that was very normal. Every Little town had its synagogue, and on Sabbath day, everything stopped and everyone went to synagogue. It's kind of like things were on Sundays when I was growing up here in the South in the 1950s. Uh, Everything stopped on Sundays. Uh, All businesses and stores were closed. Restaurants didn't open until noon or 1 p.m., and almost everyone went to church. Uh, Easily, 75% of the population was in church on Sunday. Now, here in Florida, it's down to 35%, the lowest of any southern state. Uh, now, you might think that, well, that's because Florida isn't really a southern state anymore because of all the, the influx of all the people from up north. But in fact, only two states in the south even cracked the 50% mark for weekly church attendance. Uh, and those are Alabama and Tennessee. Um, so even the so-called Bible Belt doesn't attend church like it used to. Uh, But in biblical Israel, almost everyone except those classified as sinners, which would be the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the criminals, and those who had been excommunicated, uh, went to synagogue on the Sabbath. And just like when we attend church today, it was very routine with very familiar faces, very familiar activities, and very familiar events. And if you put all this together with Matthew 3 and 4, you learn that this incident, this first time he was in Nazareth, took place shortly after Jesus' baptism and temptation by Satan in the wilderness. He had begun his public ministry, and it says he was teaching in their synagogues and being glorified by all. So his public ministry is off to a good start, and it's only been a brief time since he had been there as a citizen of Nazareth. And so he does as he always did. He went to the synagogue. In fact, if this was a Friday evening, just as the sun was going down, he would have heard a very familiar sound. He would have heard two trumpet blasts. Uh, Those two trumpet blasts would have come from a trumpet in the hands of the minister of the synagogue who climbed up on the roof of his house. And just as the sun was beginning to set, he would blow two blasts, warning of the impending beginning of the Sabbath. He would then wait a short time he would blow a second time, uh, that time one blast, and after that blast, all thing, halt, work halted. And after a short space, another short space of time, he would blow another single blast, and then instantly put his trumpet down, lest he defame and dishonor the Sabbath by carrying the burden of a trumpet, since that third blast indicated that Sabbath had officially begun. He would not defile the Sabbath. Jesus would have heard those trumpet blasts and with all the rest of the people, he would have stayed in a home on Friday evening eating a Sabbath meal with the others in the home. And at the dawn of the Sabbath morning, he would have gone to the synagogue, which would have been so much a part of his life for 30 years in Nazareth, and he would have taken his seat and seen very familiar faces, people he knew so very, very well, even from the human viewpoint. They were the same, but he wasn't. Because in the intervening time since he had been gone, he had become famous. And there's a certain curiosity about him because of all that had been told about him in the local gossip mill. And in those days, if you were considered to be a famous or well-known rabbi, and you went to a synagogue, you were invited to teach. And so... He became the speaker, the teaching rabbi that day. And as was the standard custom. It says at the end of verse 16, he stood up to read. That was the standard way they did it. They always stood up to read the scriptures as an indication of the authority of the word of God. And then after reading the text, they sat down to teach, lest the people think that the man's teaching had the same authority as God's word. Uh, They stood to read, they sat to teach. And then verses 17 to 19 tell us, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now that is a very important text. It's a messianic text that describes the ministry of the Messiah and also described exactly the ministry of Jesus Christ. And verse 20 says, He closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Everyone in the place is staring at him, transfixed to hear what he's about to say. And verse 21 tells us, it says, He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, he probably said a lot more than that, and no doubt became specific. So he's saying, basically, the Messiah is here. He's in your midst. This is fulfilled. This is a banner day above all days in the history of Israel. This is the day when the promise is fulfilled, the greatest day in all history. And it's clear that at first they didn't understand the implications of what he was saying, because verse 22 says, And all were speaking well of him, and marveling at the gracious words which are coming forth from his lips, And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? In other words, they're saying, isn't this guy Joseph the carpenter's son? Did he not also uh, become our carpenter? How did he become so articulate? And then Jesus goes for the throat. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place in Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. In other words, he's saying, I know what you guys are going to say. You're going to say, if you're such a good physician and you heal so many people, let's see you do it right here now. Heal yourself. In other words, don't tell us stories about what you've done. Do something right here. Whatever we heard take place in Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. Don't forget, charity begins at home, Jesus, so do it right here. Now, there was no need for that. He'd done miracle upon miracle upon miracle. So he tells them in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. They'd already given evidence of that when they said, Is this not Joseph's son? They're saying he can't be anything too special. He's just the carpenter's kid. And although it isn't mentioned by Luke in his account of this first encounter, Mark mentions it in his account in the second incident. They said, Is this man not the carpenter? So they knew that he was the local tradesman who had followed in his father's footsteps. He was no big deal to them, so why all this hubbub about him being a prophet and a healer? And then Jesus throws him a gut punch. Look at verses 25 to 27. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to the home was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In other words, he's saying, hey, there's a lot of Jewish widows, and God never sent a prophet to any of them, but he sent Elijah to a non-Jew. Boy, you just don't say that in a synagogue. You see, he's defending the right that he had to minister as the light of the nations. In Matthew 4, he says he's come to be a light to the nations and he's preaching out to the nations and the people who were not God's people. And so he says to these fellow Nazarenes, look, God's not going to do anything special for you. Why not? Because of your resistant, hard-hearted unbelief. God doesn't cast his pearls before swine. Well, we have to stop. Our time is up. I'd love to finish this, but I'll finish it. Lord willing, next week. Any uh, comments or questions on that? Remember, this is all lead up to Matthew 13. Yes. The position heal yourself did not mean he. He was. was to heal himself. Right. Heal somebody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You heal heal some of us. Show that you really. I've been wondering about that for yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Okay. Yes, another. Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's close with prayer and head on into church and worship together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to teach your word, to hear its truths and apply them in our lives. Now, Lord, as we go into the Worship service together. or pray that all of us would lift our hearts in song and gratitude for all you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, bless us as we go from this place today, that as we go through our lives, we would honor you and glorify you in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. amen. Jim,